Now this morning, we continue our study of the Bible's teachings regarding the duties of Christian fellowship, utilizing a treatise written by the Puritan John Owen. And I say that because I've learned even this past week that there are those who are watching these adult Bible classes from other churches, and they may not know what we have been studying. So that is what we have been doing, and we are presently working through section two of John Owen's treatise, and that section is entitled, Rules for Walking in Fellowship with Respect to Other Believers. And we've been examining Owen's third rule in this second section. And that rule states, believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by their actions and sufferings, first of all, for the purity of the ordinances, second of all, for the honor, liberty, and privileges of the congregation, and thirdly, in order to help others in the face of all opponents and adversaries. So John Owen gives us this comprehensive duty. We are to strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by our actions and our sufferings for these three realities. Again, the purity of the ordinances, the honor, liberty, and privileges of the congregation, and thirdly, in order to help others in the face of all opponents and adversaries. And last Lord's Day, we began our study of this third responsibility of every believer in the local church to help one another as they face opponents and adversaries. And as we began our study of this specific duty or responsibility, I asked the question last Sunday, according to the Bible, who are our opponents and adversaries. And I stated last Sunday that a wise, prudent, and successful military general, before he embarks on warfare, will seek to do all that he can legitimately to know his opponent. And so we too must know who our opponents are, who our adversaries are, if we are to then help our Christian brothers and sisters in the local church or in the world. And we learned last Sunday first that the Christian's primary opponent is the devil. And we looked at different scriptures that teach us that the devil is the chief slanderer of God and of his people, the accuser of the brethren, an adversary, a destroyer, an enemy, a murderer, and a liar. And as such, he is the chief opponent of every Christian and every Christian church. And because we have such an enemy in this world, every Christian and every member of a biblical church of the Lord Jesus Christ must help his or her brothers and sisters in their battles with this chief foe. And if we are to help our brethren by way of review, we must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And then last week I gave three specific applications of how we can help one another in the church and not be ignorant of Satan's devices. By way of review, we are to help 
our brethren who struggle with assurance of salvation due to the slanders and accusations and lies of the devil. A very common problem with Christians who struggle with assurance of salvation. The devil whispers and says, but you've done that sin again and again and again. You cannot be forgiven. How are you a Christian? That's just a brief example. So we must help our brethren who struggle in this way by using scripture to exhort them, admonish them, instruct them so that they will persevere in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then secondly, we learned by way of application last week, we can help one another in the church by being keenly aware of one of Satan's frequent stratagems. And that is his work of dividing and conquering the brethren. And knowing this stratagem of the devil, we must resist and reject those motions and words and ways which bring about division and disunity among the brethren in the church. And then the third application, by way of review, was this. We can help one another in the church by not becoming bitter toward other Christians in the church. Two of the spiritual activities in which we must soak our minds, our hearts, and our wills in order to not become bitter toward other Christians and thus help one another in the local church are these. These are just two. I gave more than two last Lord's Day. First of all, dwell more upon one another's graces than upon one another's weaknesses and infirmities. And secondly, labor to be clothed with humility, a grace which exemplified the Lord Jesus Christ. And how can we do any of this? Only by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, by indeed soaking our minds and hearts in his word, in the Bible. So that's a review. Now we come to new material this morning. According to the Bible, the Christians' opponents and adversaries are also found among our fellow human beings. Not only the devil but among our fellow human beings. And we must not be naive or oblivious to this reality. Now, I am not saying that we should be suspicious of all of our fellow human beings and regard every unconverted man or woman as an overt and active opponent and adversary to the Christian. I'm not saying that. The Bible does teach the reality of what is called God's common restraining grace. And therefore, there are many men and women who are very kind toward Christians. As an example, perhaps your unconverted neighbor who knows that you are a Christian because you've witnessed to that neighbor many times. You've given the gospel to that neighbor. He knows your pattern on the Lord's Day. He knows that you are Christian. And suppose one day he observes that you are struggling to get your lawnmower started. And he comes over into your yard and he offers to help you because he's very mechanical and you're not. 
He is not your adversary, you see, on that occasion. He is your helper, and he was glad to help you. That is a manifestation of God's common restraining grace upon the corruption of the heart of an unconverted man. And we can and should be thankful to God for this reality, God's common grace, God's common restraining grace, this reality in our world. For there are many instances in this very day of the coronavirus where medical professionals, doctors and nurses who are unconverted are helping many, including Christians. So I'm not saying that every unconverted man or woman is an overt opponent to Christians and the Christian church. But there are individuals who do actively oppose Christians and the Christian church, and the Bible identifies some of them. And again, we should not be naive. We should not be oblivious to these realities. We need to be watchful, prayerful. We need to remember we are in a hostile world. So first of all, first of all, religious evil men and women, religious So men and women who are very religious, but not Christians, they may say they're Christians, but they are actually unconverted and evil. There are religious evil men and women who are actually opponents and adversaries to Christians. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 13 and verse 6. Acts 13 and verse 6, where we see an example of this. Acts 13, verse 6, And when they had gone through the whole island unto Paphos, this is the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, when they had gone through the whole island unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of understanding. The same, Sergius Paulus, called unto him Barnabas and Saul, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn aside the proconsul from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fastened his eyes on him and said, O full of all guile and all villainy, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord. And there we stop our reading of this passage. So we see from this passage that there are unconverted men and at times women who are not content to be passive when they see the gospel impacting the lives of sinners, when they see the gospel working in the lives of sinners. And such evil persons 
actively oppose the proclamation of the gospel, the true gospel, and seek to turn those who are seeking the Lord away from the truth of Christ. And at times, like in this passage in Acts 13, they can be very aggressive. And it is not unusual for such individuals to also be very religious in their own way. Notice from the passage, Elymas, we are told, was a sorcerer. That is, he was a magician of some sorts. Not like magicians who do special so-called magic tricks at a birthday party, but of a different sort. And that is the meaning of the Greek word which describes him. Luke also tells us, notice in the passage in verse 6, that this man, Elymas, was a false prophet. He was also a Jew. And that he also had an alternative name, Bar-Jesus, which literally means son of Jesus. Elymas was a religious man who sought to turn the proconsul Sergius Paulus away from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on this occasion, what did Paul do? What did Barnabas do? Were they mute? Were they quiet? Did they do nothing? No, Paul spoke in order to come to the aid of apparently a newly converted man, the proconsul. For Elymas was slandering gospel truth. Paul calls him a son of the devil. He was shaking the new and tender faith of this proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Paul helped him, you see, by coming to his defense, by speaking and confronting this false prophet. Now, I am not suggesting that you use the words of the Apostle Paul on this occasion as you seek to help and protect new converts from the evil teaching of false prophets. We need to remember that Paul was an apostle. We are not apostles. But nevertheless, the principle of what we should do to help our brethren is seen here in this history. As one commentator noted concerning this passage, Luke calls Elymas a false prophet, not in the sense that he foretold things which did not come to pass, but in the sense that he, Elymas, claimed falsely to be a medium of divine revelation. He was claiming to be a prophet of God. And surely, brethren, there are such false prophets today in America, in the world, who claim to be a medium of divine revelation. Many of them call themselves Christians, preachers of the gospel, prophets, etc. But such false prophets seek to turn people away from the scriptures, turn them away from the true gospel, turn them away from really trusting solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these false prophets can be heard and seen on television, on Facebook, on YouTube, and on other internet sites. And we should not be ignorant of this, oblivious to it. 
And therefore, each of us as Christians must help especially new converts, young Christians, vulnerable Christians. We should be helping them, we should help all Christians to steer clear of such false prophets. I could name some of them. I will not do that this morning. But if you think, I'm sure you can think of such individuals. And new converts are especially susceptible to such false teachings because they don't know their Bibles very well yet. So we can help them by speaking to them, by showing them the way of truth. Turn now to Philippians 3 and verse 18. Philippians 3 and verse 18. For many walk, of whom I told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. And there we stop the reading of Philippians 3. Notice here that Paul helped the Christians in the church in Philippi on this occasion by writing to them, because that letter was indeed written to the church. And in this letter, he helped the Christians in the church in Philippi by warning them about opponents and adversaries, those whom Paul called enemies of the cross of Christ. That's not a wrong thing for us to do. Now, if all you ever do is warn people, warn people, warn people, that's not a balanced way of dealing with the scriptures or dealing with the souls of men and women, boys and girls. But if you never warn them when a warning is needed, that's a problem. If you have a young child and that young child is going to reach for a hot pan on the top of the stove and you know in the kitchen there that it is hot because it was on a burner and the burner is now off, and what are you going to do? Let that child just reach out and grab that hot pan, bring it down onto the floor, onto himself. Perhaps it has hot grease in it. No, you're going to warn that child. You know the child's not sinning by reaching for it. The child's curious. But you're going to warn the child, protect the child. That's what we must do at times as Christians. William Hendrickson, the commentator, wrote the following about these specific words of Paul the Apostle written to the Christians in the church in Philippi. Here I quote Hendrickson. The wicked life of these persons who wish to be regarded as Christians, belie, that is, contradicted the confession of their lips. Now pause here. So Hendrickson's saying, Paul is speaking about people who called themselves Christians. That's what they confessed with their lips, but their life revealed something else. Now back to Hendrickson. They deceived themselves exerted a most sinister influence upon those who listened to them, kept unbelievers from becoming truly converted, and dishonored God. They were numerous. Note the word, Hendrickson, I'm quoting him still. They were numerous. Note the word, many. 
in verse 18. They were a real menace. Paul, while present among the Philippians, had often warned against this class of deceivers. He considers them, Hendrickson writes, he considers them not just enemies, but the enemies. Note, Hendrickson says, the definite article here, the enemies of the cross of Christ. Because of his great love for the Philippians, the apostle actually weeps when he reflects on the fact that these enemies of the cross are trying to seduce the members of the first church in Europe. One of the secrets, Hendrickson goes on to write, one of the secrets of Paul's success as a missionary was his genuine personal interest in those whom the Lord had committed to his spiritual care. Because his love for them was so real and tender, his heart was stirred to its very depths when danger threatened the people of Philippi, the church. End quote. So you see here what Hendrickson is underscoring, how Paul saw that these were religious people who were seeking to exert a very sinister influence upon the Christians in the church in Philippi. And he is helping them by writing this letter, by saying these words to them in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 3. And we, brethren, must follow Paul's example. And sometimes, indeed, you may do it through a letter. You may do it through an email. You may do it through a text. Face-to-face is always best. But, of course, Paul could not do that. And neither can we do that in this present coronavirus situation. So you may be uh, giving some words of exhortation admonition to someone that you're concerned is perhaps listening to false teaching of someone who says he or she is a Christian. Now, don't be suspicious again. Don't go around being suspicious. But if you're aware of it, we must speak. But you see, in following Paul's example, we must, as Christians, as individuals, we must have, first of all, genuine personal interest in our brethren in the local church of which we are members. A genuine personal interest. That's what Paul had. And this genuine personal interest in our brothers and sisters in Christ must expand into a love for them. A love, as Hendrickson said, that is real and tender. You need a heart then that is stirred, as Hendrickson said, to its very depths when danger threatens one of your brothers or sisters in Christ. And because of this love for our brethren, we will then warn them about false religious teachers. So is that the kind of heart you have? Do you have that kind of heart like the Apostle Paul? If not... Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess sin if sin needs to be confessed. 
sin of lovelessness, sin of bitterness, and ask for forgiveness and cleansing in the blood of Christ. Remember that the gospel is for sinners. The blood of Christ washes away all sin. And then ask the Lord to make you like Paul, to make you like Christ himself. But a second category of men and women who are often opponents and adversaries to Christians are materialistic men and women. Materialistic men and women. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and verse 20. We're jumping into the context here, but I think it will be easy to see the point. Acts 19 verse 20. So mightily grew the word of the Lord and prevailed. Now after these things were ended, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying... After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no small stir concerning the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines of Diana, or Artemis, brought no little business unto the craftsmen, whom he gathered together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, you know that by this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, But almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they are no gods that are made with hands. And not only is there danger that this, our trade, come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana or Artemis be made of no account and that she should even be deposed from her magnificence, whom all Asia and the world worships. And when they heard this, they were filled with wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And there we stop our reading of God's word. So in this history here, the silversmiths, And it would seem from the context, perhaps other craftsmen as well, they were finding that they were losing significant business because many Ephesians were now embracing the Lord Jesus Christ, having heard the gospel from the apostle, and they were abandoning their former idolatry, and of course everything connected with it, meaning they were not going and buying these silver shrines to the goddess Diana. And when we read this history, we certainly are reminded that men were created by God to be worshipers, and that they will indeed worship something or someone 
The fall of man into sin has, of course, plunged man into a state of total depravity. And consequently, instead of worshiping the one true and living God, the God of the Bible, they worship idols. That's what was the case there in Ephesus. The primary concern of Demetrius, however, was not really that the great goddess Diana would be regarded as nothing as Ephesians embraced the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. He says that in his speech to his fellow craftsmen. He makes these comments about, we don't want Diana, our goddess, to be deposed from her magnificent magnificence. But that was really not the primary concern of Demetrius. That primary concern is stated here by Demetrius. His primary concern was that his wallet would become as nothing. It wasn't really that Diana will become as nothing, but that his wallet would become as nothing since increasing numbers of Ephesian citizens were abandoning their idolatrous worship of Diana. One commentator stated this regarding this history. When religious devotion and economic interest were simultaneously offended, a quite exceptionally fervid anger was aroused. You see what he's saying? When religious devotion, they were religious people also, you see, just like our first category. Demetrius and these folks of Ephesus, they were religious But in my first category, I was really referring more to those who call themselves Christians, who are religious that way, but not true Christians. And therefore, they oppose the true gospel and true Christians. But this religious category are idolaters, but they are also materialistic men and women, you see. And when religious devotion, the commentator wrote, and economic interest, when they were simultaneously offended, a very exceptional, fervid anger was aroused. This commentator goes on to say, those preachers, Paul and his companions, by denying all existence to divinities that were made by human hands and condemning any attempt to represent the divine likeness in visible form, were threatening the livelihood of those who carried on such a profitable business. It was intolerable that they should stand by idly, doing nothing. And that's the end of that commentator's quote. So, of course, Demetrius and his friends were not going to stand by and do nothing. We must not be ignorant of such materialistic adversaries of the gospel and of Christians, and we must seek to help our brethren who are impacted by such opponents. On this particular occasion in Ephesus, we didn't read the passage, we didn't continue the reading. Paul wanted to go into the amphitheater where the whole crowd, the whole city was gathered in a great riot saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. 
Paul wanted to go into that amphitheater, but on this particular occasion, the Ephesian Christians, there from the church in Ephesus, they helped Paul by preventing him from entering into the amphitheater. Paul was ready to enter the amphitheater to defend the gospel. He was not a coward. But on this occasion, his Christian brethren wisely prohibited Paul from doing so. And thus, they helped Paul. They probably preserved his life. They helped Paul in the face of such adversaries and such opponents to the gospel. Perhaps a modern example, 21st century America example, of Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen can be seen in many who are involved in planned parenthood. Stop and think about it. Have you ever wondered why so many of those who work in planned parenthood, I didn't say all, I don't know that. I don't know that all who work in Planned Parenthood would take this posture. Some probably sincerely think they're doing good when, of course, they're murdering or helping to murder babies. So I didn't say all. But have you ever wondered why so many of those who work in Planned Parenthood and the doctors who perform abortions, they're often very vitriolic, It's a a good word to describe what they're like. Vitriolic. It's a word that sounds like what it means. They become verbally very nasty in their speech towards genuine Christians, towards the gospel. Why? Yes, it's true that as unconverted men and women, they are at enmity with God and God's moral law. But also, there is money. There is money involved in their work of killing babies who have not yet been born. And that is actually one of the real reasons, I believe, that they are so opposed. Because when pro-life individuals are seeking through the legal means or peaceful protests, etc., to dissuade people from going to abortion clinics, to Planned Parenthood, etc. They're, they're not really just opposed in the Planned Parenthood people's minds to what they're doing. It's their money, you see. And when God brings a genuine, spirit-wrought, biblical revival to any city or to any state or province, or to any country, those who are profiting from sinful practices will become, and historically indeed they always have become, will become very violent adversaries to Christians and to the gospel because money is being affected. 
For when you touch the wallet or purse of many unconverted people, they will become outspoken and even at times forceful opponents to Christians and biblical churches. And when our brethren, our Christian brethren, face such opposition by materialistic men and women, we must help our brethren by using legitimate means to protect them, to defend them, and by persevering in proclaiming the gospel. We must not allow materialistic people or religious people who are not Christians, we must not allow them to intimidate us into silence. But we must speak the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the only Savior of sinners, and he's alive today, seated in heaven at the right hand of God Almighty, and he is still an active, omnipotent, gracious, willing Savior who, through the proclamation of the gospel, converts sinners to himself, saves them from their sins, and you can be freely forgiven of all your sins, even the murdering of babies in the womb without number. If you're a doctor, you can be forgiven for all of those murders by being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ because of his death on the cross of Golgotha. We need to speak that gospel to people in America. That's what they need to hear. We must encourage our Christian brethren to do that, to not be intimidated into silence. But a third opponent, and this is really not, uh, it's more general, I suppose, is the world. The world is an opponent, an adversary to Christians. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And I shall begin reading at verse 15. Probably a very familiar passage to most of you, if not all of you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the vain glory of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And now turn to James chapter 4 and verse 4. James 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And there we stop our reading of that passage. So 1 John 2, 15 and 16, James 4, verse 4. First of all, John declared that if you love the world, the love of God the Father is not in your heart. It's that simple. James declared that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. 
So it follows from these declarations of John and James that the world is an opponent and adversary to God, and consequently, the world is an opponent and adversary to every Christian and every biblical church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we must ask the question, what did John and James mean by the world? Clearly, they were not referring to the physical world which God created. John gave us three explicit examples of the world in those verses. He wrote that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the vainglory of life, these three are part and parcel of the world. And without too much difficulty and by remembering various scriptures, it seems likely that the sins of sexual lust, the sins of gluttony, perhaps, envying, covetousness, pride, and arrogance, they may have been in John's mind when he named those three explicit examples of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the vain glory of life. Now, James provided additional insight regarding this opponent and adversary, the world. James called the Christians to whom he was writing adulteresses. The word James used was indeed feminine and plural, adulteresses. If your Bible translation says adulterers or adulterers and adulteresses, it's really the feminine plural word adulteresses. That was, of course, not a mistake on James' part. Why did he do that? James wrote in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets who condemned the people of God for breaking their marriage covenant with Jehovah when they abandoned him and joined themselves to idols. When they did this, they were charged by God through the Old Testament prophets of committing the sin of adultery, spiritual adultery, and the people of God were likened unto adulteresses. So you see, James' point is this. Whenever we permit our hearts as Christians to be more in love with this present world and all of its pleasures and material realities, to be more in love with them than we are with our Creator, Savior, God, we have committed at that point in time spiritual adultery. The world, you see, is an opponent and an adversary, luring us, drawing us to commit spiritual adultery. And such love of the world and the world's ways can begin in very subtle ways. It can be, begin in small ways, it can begin in ways that seem to be innocent. Seem to be innocent. And I could give a number of examples. One would be the drinking of alcoholic beverages. I believe that is a Christian liberty according to the word of God. But there are some who take that liberty to extremes. And before they know it, and I know of some cases where this has happened, so I'm not just making this up. 
with some professing Christians. I believe they were real Christians. It became a pattern for them. It was a number of guys, and they were just drinking more and more and more frequently. And they never got drunk. That's what they claimed. But now drinking alcohol was necessary for every social interaction with others. They were becoming like the world. Or the movies you watch on Netflix or on Amazon Prime Video or however you watch them, buying a DVD or renting it or borrowing it from the library, the movies you watch, you need to be very careful because the world can affect you through what you watch and hear, maybe initially in very subtle ways. James wrote to these Christians, and they were Christians to whom he wrote. He wrote to these Christians because they were beginning to be overcome by their adversary and enemy, the world. And they were being overcome by the world in subtle ways, in seemingly innocent ways, but they were ways that were actually alarming and sinful and harmful, and that's why James wrote to them. Turn to the letter of James. If you're not there right now, turn back to James in your Bibles and note some of the ways in which this adversary, the world, was insidiously influencing and infecting these real Christians. Turn to James chapter 2 and beginning with verse 1. I'm not going to read the passage, but you can look at the passage with your own eyes. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Some of these Christians, not all of them, but some of them were imitating the world's ways by discrimination. Discriminating against people. It is a sin. And some were starting to do that. And that is the world's way. And that was James' point. You must not be ignorant of these realities of your adversary, the world. Turn to James chapter 3 in verse 1 through 12. Some of these Christians were becoming worldly in their speech and the way they spoke negatively of others. That's being like the world. That's what you hear in the office. That's what you hear if you're in some social setting with a lot of unconverted people. You hear gossip. You hear slander. You hear people speaking negative words about others, nasty words about others. And they were beginning to do this. That's worldliness. Turn to James 3, verses 13 to 18. Some of these Christians were exhibiting bitter envy, James says, selfish ambition toward others. And they were acting when they were doing this no differently than the worldly, unconverted man or woman who lived near them. Turn to James 4, verse 1 to 3. More than a few of these Christians were pursuing their own self-destructive pleasures and behaving no differently than the unconverted people of the world. That's what James writes there in verses 1 through 3. 
the world and all that is bound up in that word, according to the Bible, is an active opponent and adversary to every Christian. And we must not permit the world to conform us to its ways. To me, I must not let it conform me to its ways. You must not let the world conform you to its ways. And we must also prayerfully and purposefully and biblically help our brothers and sisters in Christ in their battles with these worldly influences that are all around us. We must be willing to be vulnerable, to be courageous, to lovingly, graciously, purposefully draw alongside a brother or sister, someone you have a relationship with in the church, and say, brother, sister, You've said things that have made me a little concerned in the past three, four months. The things that you are watching on Netflix. I've not watched them, but I just know from the titles and from things I've read on the news or heard on the news. And I just say, is that really unto edification? Is this helping you on the way to glory? Now, of course, I'm not condemning the watching of movies. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let us guard our own hearts against this opponent, the world. And let us help one another that we be not worldly minded, but heavenly minded. Not consumed with the world, but consumed more and more with the things of Christ. We need to help one another. The world is not our friend. So those are some additional opponents of the Christian and the Christian church. But now I'd like to give, very briefly, some specific ways in which we can help. I've already said, use the word of God, speak the word of God, pray for one another, encourage one another, have fellowship with one another. But we can also help our brethren on the way to heaven by cultivating compassion for them. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 28. Paul, writing to this church, stated, Besides those things that are without, there is that which presses upon me daily, anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is caused to stumble, and I burn not? You see, when Paul saw a Christian stumbling, and he saw that it was because of some sinful influence in that Christian's life, maybe the world, maybe an unconverted friend, who knows what it might have been. What was he? Was he mindless, careless, oblivious to this? No, he said, Who is caused to stumble and I burn not? You see, he had a concern, a compassion when his Christian friends there in Corinth were being impacted by negative influences around them, whether it was the world or whether it was specific people, we do not know. 
He had compassion. We must have compassion for one another. But secondly, we must pray for our brethren. I said this already, but we'll look at a passage, Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. Turn there in your Bibles. We help our brethren by cultivating compassion for them. We help our brethren by praying for them. One leads to the other, actually. Compassion for others will incite you to pray for them as well. Acts chapter 12 and verse 4. And when he, Herod, had taken him, Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in the prison. But prayer was made earnestly of the church unto God for him. You see, Peter was indeed suffering at the hands of an opponent and an adversary, King Herod. What did the church do? They had compassion upon him. They did what they could do. They did the best thing they could do. They gathered together as a church and they earnestly prayed unto God for Peter. And God answered their prayers and delivered Peter. But thirdly, we can help our brethren by responsible actions. Turn to Acts chapter 17. And we'll jump down to verse 7. Acts chapter 17, verse 7. We're jumping into the context. Jason received Paul and Silas, we're told earlier in the passage, Verse 7, whom Jason has received. And these all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, one Jesus. And they troubled these rabble-rousers. They troubled the multitude and the rulers of the cities city when they heard these things. Verse 9, and when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who, when they were come there, went into the synagogue of the Jews. You see, the brethren, the Christian brothers and sisters, immediately sent away Paul and Silas. They did it by night. One can presume they did it by night for the safety of Paul and Silas. They didn't want Paul and Silas to be cast into prison or to be killed. And so they took responsible action when they were facing such opponents and adversaries and sent them away by night to the city of Berea. Fourthly, we help our brethren by defending and not deserting them in their time of trial. By defending and not deserting them. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. 2 Timothy 4 verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord will render to him according to his works, of whom you should be aware. For he greatly withstood our words. At my first defense, no one took my part, but all forsook me. May it not be laid to their account. So you see here from these words of Paul to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith greatly withstood our words. He was an opponent to Paul, an opponent to the gospel. 
And when he had to defend himself, no one was with him to be with him, to support him, to encourage him. They forsook Paul. And so what I'm saying from this passage, we need to learn not to do that. When our brethren, when gospel preachers, when they face opponents and adversaries, when they are persecuted, when they are slandered, we must defend them. We must not desert them. That is a way that we help them, especially gospel preachers in our day and age. Well, in closing... I'm sure there are many other things that we can do to help our brethren in the light of opponents and adversaries. But I would like you now to turn to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Romans 5 and verse 8. But God commends his own love toward us, And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We must never forget that we who are now Christians by the grace of God, according to this passage in Romans 5, we were once enemies of Christ, of the gospel, of God, of his law. We must not forget that we were once enemies. But God commended his own love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we need to not forget those gospel truths as we face opponents and adversaries. Paul himself, who wrote these words, was once Saul of Tarsus, an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ, an enemy of Christians. And yet God, in gracious, powerful mercy, transformed him, removed his heart of stone, gave him a heart of flesh, gave him grace to repent, grace to believe, washed away all his sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul never forgot, we should never forget, what Jesus Christ has done for us as we seek to help our brethren in the face of opponents and adversaries, they are enemies presently of Christ and his people, of the gospel, of the church. But we were once such enemies. But God commends his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We must never forget that. May God help us. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your rich word. How wonderfully rich your word is. Teach us, Lord, from your word this day. Write these valuable lessons upon our hearts and minds. Help us to live in the light of them. 
and to also be ever grateful, ever humble, ever thankful to you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.